0: This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 12, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I think I've said the last couple of times I've been here that uh, if I really loved you, I would prepare something special for you for this chapel, but I don't love you that much, so (laughs) I'm just uh, preaching to you what I preached the previous Sunday. Uh, And this was our closing message in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. So we'll look at Ecclesiastes 12 today. When I was in my 20s, I coached a Saturday morning floor hockey team of children who were ages 5 to 8. And I took a couple of things away from that experience that have stayed with me. One is that Some parents are crazy because I had this uh, quaint idea that our objectives were, one, to teach kids how to play the game, two, teach them teamwork and sportsmanship, and three, to have some fun. As such, it was my philosophy that all the kids would play roughly equal amounts of time. What I failed to realize, according to some, even many of the parents, is that their child is going to be the next Steve Eisenman. We were quite a, talented group to say the least i mean what are the chances that on a team of 15 elementary age children at least half of them are surefire nhl prospects i learned that you do not want to be that parent living your life vicariously through your child so that they will become what you were deprived of because all the coaches were too dumb to know talent when they saw it or because you had that knee entry in 10th grade that held you back you're sure you could have made it to the pros. Your child is going to be given every chance starting when they're three years old. So I learned from coaching that parents are hard to coach. And I also learned that the kids are hard to coach. And one thing in particular made it difficult. Children have a tendency to, no matter what sport they're playing, whether it's soccer, basketball, hockey, whatever it is, they all seem to move together as a group in a large clump. They see the ball or the puck, and they just all go to it or the one running or skating with it. And the coach's challenge is to teach them to play a position. But in order to do that, you have to provide them a wider perspective, that there's a full court or field or rink, and that when we spread it out and we play our position, we can, as a team, advance the ball or the puck and even score. Now, for those very, very, very few children that do make it to the next level. Did you hear that, Dad? Very, very, very few. Their coaches will record their games, and they'll pour over them to see what all is happening on the entire court or field or rink. And then they can point that out to the individual players that they see more than just the limited view that they have when they're playing. In the case of football, since the field is so large, members of the coaching staff will often be in a booth above the field wearing a headset so that they can see everything that's happening and communicate plays and information below. So, for example, this past Saturday, Michigan-Ohio State, I would have liked to have heard what the Michigan guy is saying as he's observing the quarterback. Something like, hey, when you see a guy with a Michigan jersey wide open, throw the ball to him. that's all sports, a field, a rink, a court. The most important game, so to speak, that you'll ever play is the one called life. Not the the board game, but the real thing. And the field that you play it on is vast. It's the entire world around you. But many play life the way children play sports. They just move in packs and clumps from one thing to the next, following the crowd, never seeing the big picture, and how what they and what they do fits in. This is all because, in the oft-repeated words of the book of Ecclesiastes, we look at life only from under the sun. We don't see the whole field, so our perspective is limited to what's right in front of us, what it is we're currently going through, what our current challenge or struggle is. When we see life only from under the sun, we don't see God's larger purpose, nor how the position we're called to play fits in. But God does know, and he sees all of it, and he's graciously given us, as it were, the ultimate playbook, the Bible. God's word gives us God's perspective so that we can expand our vision and not get caught up in living merely in light of our present moment and circumstances. It's fitting, then, that Ecclesiastes concludes with a reminder of the value of the wisdom contained in this book, since that's really what it's all been about. Ecclesiastes, like all of Scripture, gives us the widest possible perspective on life, on ourselves, on others, on our circumstances. Ecclesiastes, and the Bible as a whole, calls us to see life from above the sun. This final passage in Ecclesiastes gives us five reasons that we should cherish the Word of God. We should cherish the Word of God because, first of all, it speaks to us honestly. Verse 8 of chapter 12. It speaks to us honestly. Verse 8, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Now, verse 8 concludes the message portion of Ecclesiastes. Verses 9 through 14 are concluding remarks Telling us to take the message of the book seriously. And so the message portion of Ecclesiastes in verse 8 ends precisely where it began. Chapter 12 and verse 8 is the same as chapter 1 and verse 2. So chapter 1 and verse 2, chapter 12 and verse 8 form an inclusio. And in between, Solomon makes his case that everything in life seen from under the sun is meaningless. Now, the Hebrew word meaningless, many of you know, is Havel, which has been Solomon's multi-purpose word throughout Ecclesiastes to express the futility of life in a fallen world. It refers to a breath or a vapor, like the steam rising from a boiling tea kettle. This is our life, Solomon tells us. It's like a wisp of smoke that's impossible to grasp, and before you know it, it's gone. The psalmist said in Psalm 39.5, Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. One commentator has summarized what Solomon has told us within the bookends of chapter 1 and verse 2 and chapter 12 and verse 8. By beginning and ending with the same statement, by using this inclusio device, Solomon reinforces one of the main points of this book, namely that there's nothing new under the sun. Life is really same old, same old, if it's only seen from under the sun, and so all is ultimately meaningless all the time. And so we wind up right where we started. But even though we started at the beginning of the book, and what was started and said at the beginning of the book is still true at the end, it's hopefully no longer true of us as you go through the book of Ecclesiastes. That is, having been instructed for 11 and a half chapters on the fact that life viewed only under the sun is meaningless, our gaze should now be lifted higher to above the sun so that we can see what it's all about and no longer live aimlessly, living without purpose. In Ecclesiastes, we're taught that work is meaningless, that there's nothing for us to gain from all our restless toil under the sun because it's all just, quote, striving after the wind. It tells us that human wisdom is meaningless, that it only increases our sorrow and our grief. It teaches us that whether we're wise or foolish does not even matter from under the sun because we're all going to die in the end anyway. It warns that pursuing pleasure is meaningless. Wine, women, song, parks, houses, vineyards, gold, silver, and treasure. This is nothing that's going to be gained under the sun, Ecclesiastes 2 says. Chapter 4 showed that power is meaningless. Chapter 5, that money is meaningless too because it causes no end of trouble as we look after our possessions, which can all be lost in a moment's notice. Even if we do manage to hold on to that money, it cannot satisfy our souls. And then there's the last of all the meaningless things in life, the meaninglessness of death. Most of us will have to endure the indignities of growing old that the first part of chapter 12 describes, and then after that, the final absurdity of returning to the ground from which we were made. Dust we are, to dust we will return, we were told back in chapter 3. In the midst of all of that doom and gloom, there have been rays of light in Ecclesiastes. In spite of the meaninglessness, we can still rejoice in life's many blessings, especially when we see them from God's perspective, as gifts from Him. Solomon has encouraged us to eat and drink and find satisfaction in our work. He's told us that there's a time for healing and harvesting, a time for laughing and dancing, for loving and making peace. He's told us to rejoice in the prosperity that God so richly provides and enjoy life with the one whom we love. There is joy in the world under the blessing of a faithful God. But what we're mainly supposed to see in Ecclesiastes is how meaningless life is without God. How little joy there is under the sun if we try to leave our Creator out of His universe. By the time you get to the end of Ecclesiastes, we have to admit that Solomon has proven his case. The Bible has, as it always does, presented an honest look at life. Now thankfully, God does not leave us there. Though, in despair, as we look at how meaningless life is, God has not left us in that despair. He does not leave us there in the book of Ecclesiastes. He does not do so in the Bible as a whole. God has purpose in telling us that we have no purpose under the sun. And it's to point us to something better. So not only should we cherish the word of God because it speaks to us honestly Here's a second of those five things that we should cherish from the word of God. It speaks to us carefully. When I say carefully, I mean just full of care, taking care in the way it's written. Verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. Verse 9 is telling us that God through Solomon took great care regarding what to include in this book. Solomon took the time to sift through all the wise sayings at his disposal and he included only those that arrest our attention. Proverbs like anger resides in the lap of fools chapter 7 or again in chapter 7 who can straighten what has been made crooked. What this verse says about Solomon selecting the most appropriate Proverbs is in keeping with what we know about the book of Proverbs mainly written by the same Solomon. 1 Kings tells us that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs but he only included in the book of proverbs and in ecclesiastes those that were most helpful this is what god has done in selecting the material that he used the human writers to include in the bible he's not included everything only what's needed to achieve his purpose and make the bible according to second timothy three sixteen, useful useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And so John, at the end of his gospel, says Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, that you may believe. So we should cherish the word of God because it speaks honestly, speaks carefully. Thirdly, it speaks beautifully. Verse 10, the teacher searched to find just the right words, And what he wrote was upright. Now the word upright refers to words of delight and is translated that way in the New American Standard Bible. The beautiful writing found in Ecclesiastes has been acknowledged by believer and unbeliever alike. The famous American writer Tom Wolfe described Ecclesiastes as, quote, the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. The greatest single piece of writing I have known. Ecclesiastes gave us memorable phrases that people use but don't often know their origin. The sun also rises. To everything there is a season. There is eternity in the hearts of men. Cast your bread upon the waters. The almond tree blossoms. Man does not know his time. And others. Ecclesiastes, like all of the Bible, reveals the character of the God who is the ultimate author and on whom the story is centered. And part of his character is his beauty. And so it should not surprise us that some of the most beautiful writing known to man is contained in the Bible. A book that reveals a God of exquisite beauty. And so one has said the Bible is pleasing to the ear. It inspires the imagination. It fascinates the mind and it delights the soul. The word of God is to be cherished because it speaks to us honestly, carefully, Beautifully, fourthly, truthfully, speaks to us truthfully. Verse 10 again. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. Now, we saw that he speaks honestly, and now we're saying truthfully. So what's the difference? Well, the first point was about looking at all of life in an unvarnished way without sugarcoating any of it. Here we're speaking of giving instruction that is true you see, it's important to add that after adding words of delight that they were, it was also true because sometimes when seeking to speak or write in pleasing and beautiful ways, the truth can get sacrificed because truth is sometimes hard to hear. And so we mask it in ways that fail to make that truth clear. I've been in tag team counseling sessions where myself and another person might be counseling an individual or a couple. And in a number of those, I've been kind of just riding shotgun, letting somebody else lead over the years. And I've been in sessions where the individual leading is so careful with his words and is trying to speak so kindly that the truth never actually gets across. So I end up being the hatchet man, saying what he's trying to say is you're sinning and you need to stop. But you know, without confrontation with the truth, there is no repentance and without repentance there's no salvation or sanctification and jesus said your word is truth and those words verse 11 tell us are like goads the words of the wise are like goads a goad is what a farmer or a shepherd would use to direct his animal and to get the animal's attention it was a sharp stick that was not designed to injure the animal but to command his full attention We have a reference to this when Paul described his conversion story in Acts chapter 26. He said Jesus spoke to him on the road to Damascus saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Ecclesiastes does for God's people what a goad does for an animal. It inflicts pain, but it's for the purpose of redirecting us. It harms, but it harms in order to heal. Its words are designed to make us uncomfortable enough with sin to motivate us to turn away from it. In the days of the early church, one church father said, the mind is roused and spurred by the instructions of wise people just as much as the body is by an ox being applied. It's sometimes said that experience is the best teacher. I would add, yeah, experience is the best teacher, especially when it's someone else's experience. And Solomon gives us the benefit of learning from his vast experience, much of that experience negative. And he writes such that Ecclesiastes is, in the words of one preacher, like a cattle prod that moves us away from the deception of money and pleasure and to the goodness of God. It moves us away from expressing foolish anger and mocking laughter. His words spur us on to patience, contentment, humility, and joy. When we forget about God, Solomon prods us to remember our creator. And the moment we begin to think we're going to live forever, he pokes us in the ribs and reminds us that we will all soon die. The words of the wise are like goats. And verse 11 says, Their collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails. Now some of you may have worked in construction and may be familiar with a tool called a ram set. I heard an illustration of the use of a ram set when some men were putting up a wall on a basement floor. One rookie was wondering how they would anchor that wall to the floor. Another man took out this ram set. The rookie watched as the other put a nail in the end of it. He opened it up like you would a, a gun, and he put a 22 caliber shell in it. He closed it up. He put, in, put it in place. He hit the hammer, and bam, drove the nail through the board, an inch and a half into the concrete. That wall's still standing because of firmly embedded nails. That's the Word of God that, like firmly embedded nails, anchors our lives, creates stability, causes us not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. It establishes us in the truth. One way the Bible does that is by speaking in very memorable ways. Once a wise saying is driven into the mind, it stays there like a nail that's pounded into a block of wood. Life may indeed be a vapor, but wisdom can help us pin it down, giving us a place to hang our experience. I like the way one commentator said it. The biblical Proverbs have a way of nailing us right in the conscience. They also have a way of sticking into our brains. They're so memorable that once we hear them, we never forget them. There are many such in Proverbs. Two are better than one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but time and chance happen to them all, and so forth. So the Bible, God's word, is to be cherished because it speaks to us honestly and carefully, beautifully, truthfully. And then fifthly, it speaks to us authoritatively. All of these words the wise sayings that get nailed into our hearts and that goad us into action, verse 11 says, are given by one shepherd. Now this shepherd could refer to Solomon himself since he, in chapter 1, identified himself as the king over Israel in Jerusalem. And indeed, ancient world kings were often identified as the shepherds of their people. What seems more likely is that the shepherd is none other than God himself. That's why... Shepherd is capitalized in a number of translations, including the New American Standard. This is the first time that the title shepherd has appeared in Ecclesiastes, which seems to distinguish the shepherd from Solomon rather than identifying the two. Furthermore, shepherd is one of the titles for God in the Old Testament, not only in the famous Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 80, in verse 1, hear us, shepherd of Israel, who you lead your people like a flock. This one shepherd in Ecclesiastes 12 is the one and only shepherd that is God Almighty. Because these words are not simply the philosophical musings of a mere man, but instead are the inspired, inerrant, and infallible words of God, then we must submit to them in all that they affirm. They have full authority. And so verse 12 says, Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. And we're not being told to never read any other books, or not write any books for that matter. The Bible has, in fact, much to say about the central importance of the mind in Christian growth. But all other writings are to be evaluated by their adherence to the Word of God. In his novel, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes a man from the suburbs of hell, who spent his whole life seeking the truth, or so he claims. The man wanders somewhere near the borders of heaven, where, by the gracious invitation of God, he's invited to enter. But the Spirit warns him, I can promise you, there's no scope here for your talents, only forgiveness for having perverted them. There's no atmosphere of inquiry, for I will bring you to the land not of questions, but of answers, and you shall see the face of God. the man is not ready to let go of his quest. He wants to study some more before he accepts anyone else's conclusions. And so he says, we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind. Must it not? Listen, God's Spirit says to the man. Once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and you were glad when you found them become that child again even now sadly the man refuses when i became a man he says i put away childish things the conversation suddenly ends when the man remembers he has an appointment makes his apologies and he hurries off to a discussion group in hell and the world is full of people like that my church has people like that in it every sunday those who are supposedly seeking spiritual truth But the quest itself can become an excuse for refusing to bow before the truth. These people are like the person that Paul warned about in 2 Timothy 3.7. Always learning, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So we should cherish the word of God. Many reasons for us to do so. And then, secondly and lastly, we should not only cherish the word of God, but we should cherish the God of the word. Because the word is all about him. So cherish the word of God, but cherish the God of the word. And verse 13 tells us. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Now, Ecclesiastes has told us several times before this to fear God. That is, to honor Him, revere Him, to worship Him as God. Solomon has given various reasons that we should do so, but here the reason that we should fear God and obey Him him is because one day we will stand before Him for judgment. The word duty is not found in this verse, but it may well be implied. So it's really saying this is all of mankind. And to say this is all of mankind can mean that it's applicable to every person, which, of course, is true. It can also mean that this is what mankind is all about. The most important thing for any person to do is to worship God and obey his holy commandments. Now, why does Ecclesiastes tell us about the final judgment here? One preacher summarized it very well this way. Because it means everything matters. Solomon began and ended his spiritual quest by saying that everything is meaningless and that without God there's no purpose in life. Is that all there is, he kept asking? Isn't there more to life than what I see under the sun? If there's no God and therefore no final judgment, then it's hard to see how anything we do really matters. But if there is a God who will judge the world, then everything matters. This is not all there is. There is a God in heaven who rules the world. There is a life to come after this life. One day the dead will be raised and every person who has ever lived will stand before God for judgment. When that day comes, it will be revealed that everything anyone ever did or said or thought has eternal significance. At the final judgment, whether the great white throne for unbelievers, the Bema Seat for believers, it will matter how we used our time whether we wasted it on foolish pleasures or worked hard for the Lord. It will matter what we did with our money, whether we spent it on ourselves or invested it in God's work. It will matter what we did with our bodies, what our eyes saw, our hands touched, and our mouths spoke. Whether we obeyed our father and mother will matter. So will the look we gave them and the little comment we made as we were walking away. What we did for a two-year-old will matter. The way we made time for her and got down on her level. What we said about someone else's performance will matter. The sarcastic remark or the word of genuine praise. The proud boast and the selfless sacrifice will matter. The household task and the homework assignment will matter. The cup of water, the tear of compassion, the word of testimony, all of it matters. The final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters but that everything does. What we did, how we did it, and why we did it will all have eternal significance. The reason everything matters is because everything in the universe is subject to the final verdict of a righteous God who knows every secret. What matters most of all then, therefore, is the personal decision that each person makes about Jesus Christ. Think about it. If all are going to stand before God and all are going to give an account, who can stand? Of course, the answer is no one. So now then, this points us to the most important decision that each person makes, and that's about Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes does not end with a promise of grace, but with a warning of judgment. Nevertheless, this book has the gracious purpose of pointing us to our need of the gospel. If it's true that God will bring everything to judgment, and it is, then it's desperately important for us to make sure that we will be found righteous on that awesome and momentous day. The only way to be sure is to entrust our lives to Jesus Christ, who alone has the power to save us from the righteous wrath of God. Into this vain world, the Savior came. Like us, he suffered all of its futility and frustration, but he did more. When the time was right, he took the judgment that we deserve by dying for our sins on the cross. His body returned to dust, like Solomon said, but on the third day he rose again, bringing life out of the grave. Soon Jesus will return. Romans chapter 2 says, God will judge people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, God has set a day, said Paul to the Athenian philosophers, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he is appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When that day comes, everyone who believes in Jesus will stand before the righteous judge and look into the eyes of a loving Savior. Thanks be to God. So for every person, what matters is trusting Jesus whose victory saves us from God's wrath and from life's futility. That's the big picture. That's the big picture that the Bible invites us to see that Ecclesiastes showed us. It's the big picture to which the Bible points us and into which we all fit. So we should cherish the word of God and cherish the God of that word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that your word is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Help us to cherish it and show that we do by obeying it and doing so because we cherish you. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.